The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Let's pray together. Father, you have been at work to bring us out of darkness into light of various measures of dimness and brightness. And now I pray, O oh God, that you would complete that work in some in a decisive saving way. Some will tell the story, God saved me at T for G 18. And I just ask that you'd finish that miracle. And now I pray for myself that I would be clear and faithful to your word and that these folks would be given ears to hear and hearts to embrace the truth. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the theme has been distinct from the world, and my title is New God, New Gospel, New Gladness, How is Christian Joy Distinct? I do regard this message not as... Uh, the capstone, but as the foundation of everything that's been said so far. So really this message should have been first, but they put it last, and that's fine because perhaps foundation should be remembered. So here's my main point. Under the banner of distinct from the world, my main point is the most basic, and I've thought about that word, that's an important word, the most basic, most essential distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian is not new decisions of the will, not new deeds of the hands, not new doctrines in the mind, but a new delight in the heart. That's my thesis. Say it again. The most basic distinction between the body of Christ and the world is not godly decisions, not good deeds, not genuine doctrines, but glad delights in the glory of God, the beauty of God, the excellence of God, the holy majesty of God, the marvelous mercies of God, the person of God as revealed in Jesus Christ supremely. The world is perfectly able to use its willpower to make decisions for Jesus. Judas certainly did for three years, all the while being a lover of money and a thief while willing to follow Jesus all day, every day. Secular philanthropists do good deeds. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned and have not love, I am nothing. The devil himself knows more right doctrine to be true than anyone in this room. But neither the devil 
nor secular philanthropists, nor the whole unbelieving world does or can delight in the glory of God supremely. Now, when I say that my title is New God, New Gospel, New Gladness, I mean everyone has, everyone has a God, right? And you need a new God. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So my definition of your God, anybody's God, is the supreme treasure of your heart's delight. That's who your God is, the supreme treasure of your heart's delight. Now think about this. Delight or happiness or pleasure in the heart is nobody's God the way I'm using the term God. To talk that way, like your pleasure is your God, to talk that way is a category confusion. Delight and happiness and pleasure are experiential echoes in the heart of what we treasure. Delight and happiness and pleasure are not our God. They are our worship of our God. Pleasure is not our God. Our God is what we take most pleasure in. So, everybody has a God. It's what makes us most glad. And my point is, Christians have a new God, namely God, <laughs> our highest treasure and deepest pleasure. And when I say in my title, New God, New Gospel, New Gladness, I mean everybody has a gospel. Everyone believes a good news, whether it comes true or not. And if pressed, everyone has something they believe would be the best news. And that would be, the best news would be, something is going to happen in my life that will make me the most happy. That would be my gospel. Something's going to happen to me, and it will make me most happy. And my point is, Christians have a new gospel, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, reigning forever. This is our new gospel precisely because it brings us to what will make us most happy. It's what the gospel is, good news, because it brings us to the biggest, longest happiness. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. That's the point of the gospel, to bring us to God. And 
what does the Bible say we find when we get there? Like boredom, misery forever in his presence? That's blasphemy. Self-denial in heaven is blasphemy. It says, in whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's why he died. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have the reconciliation. We rejoice in God, through whom we have the reconciliation, or Jesus, through whom we have the reconciliation. If the gospel only brought us forgiveness, if the gospel only brought us justification, if the gospel only brought us propitiation, if the gospel only brought us escape from hell, eternal life, health, and wealth, and did not bring us into the enjoyment of the person of God, it would not be good news. Out of how many songs we sing about those glories, it would not be good news because every one of those magnificent achievements of Christ are to get us to God. They're getting obstacles out of the way so we can get to God, which is the end of the quest. And it's not boredom when you get there. That would be blasphemy. It's joy when you get there. And so the gospel of Jesus, our new gospel, is a new gladness. So, the most basic, the most essential thing that distinguishes a Christian from the non-Christian is that we have a new gladness in a new God through a new gospel. That's my message, and I could just go home. However, let me see if I can show you how unbelievably controversial this is so that it lands on you with some weight and you'll stop thinking about joy as icing on the cake or peripheral or anything other at the essence of the universe and the essence of God and the essence of salvation. To help you feel some of the weight that this carries, let me venture to say that in the last 200 years, Christianity in America has been distorted or, to use a more serious word, ravaged. Christianity in America has been ravaged by the dominant teaching that decisions for God are more basic in defining a Christian than delight in God. The upshot of the dominance of this viewpoint, dominance of this viewpoint, right across the Christian spectrum from Roman Catholic to fundamentalist Protestant, the dominance of this viewpoint is the emergence of thousands upon thousands of professing Christians who have made decisions about God, join churches, have no new gladness in God, and are not Christians. The effort of this dominant viewpoint in American evangelicalism 
to define saving faith apart from spiritual affections is biblically futile. To define saving faith apart from feelings, that's a positive word, I'm using it synonymously with affections, or emotions. To define saving faith apart from feelings slash emotions slash affections of glad dependence, thankful trust, fervent admiration, pleased submission, contented resting, thrilled treasuring, eager reverence, heartfelt adoration is futile. You cannot strip those adjectives away. Glad, thankful, fervent, pleased, contented, thrilled, eager, heartfelt. You cannot strip them away from the nouns. Trust, admiration, submission, resting, treasuring, reverence, adoration. You can't strip those affectional adjectives away from the nouns which we try to make faith and have anything left except what the devil can do. Or, if you think carefully, you might have some oxymorons left over like unthankful saving faith. But there is no such thing One of the reasons that this viewpoint that decisions are more basic to faith than delight, one of the reasons this holds so much sway in America or the world is the belief that the moment at the moment of conversion, man, not God, must be in decisive final control of whether saving faith happens. That's a very, very carefully worded sentence, because I just read a big book <laughs> by an Arminian, and I know where the loopholes are in our Calvinistic language. So I'm going to say it again. It, the reason this thing holds such sway over the church, that decisions have to be more basic to saving faith than new delight, wrought by God Almighty in a transformation of the heart, the reason it holds such sway is because of the, the desperate belief and conviction that at the moment of conversion, that's an important statement, Man, not God, must be in decisive, final, at that moment, decisive, final control of whether saving faith happens in that moment. It's got to be mine, not his. That's why it holds such sweat. I've got to be in control. And since, this view says, 
We do have control over our decisions of the will. We don't have control over the affections of the heart. Therefore, the affections of the heart are not allowed to be basic or essential to what a Christian is. Because that puts us out of control, God in control, and you know where that goes. Glory to sovereign grace. That's where it goes. That would mean in the moment of conversion, a miracle has to happen. A miracle has to happen. To waken, to waken spiritual affections that don't exist in the sinful human heart. And sinful man, therefore, loses control. Never had it? We acknowledge he's lost it. The miracle-working God would have decisive final control at the moment of conversion. And we'd have to confess, we would have to confess the biblical truth that what we need most in the moment of conversion is not sinful human autonomy, but the miraculous divine gift of a new nature with new gladness through a new gospel. That's our most basic need, which the Bible says over and over again is what actually happens in conversion. A new nature is created with a new thankful trust and a new fervent admiration and a new pleased submission and a new contented resting and a new thrilled treasuring and a new eager reverence and a new heartfelt adoration, a new gladness in a new God through a new gospel is created by God Almighty. Sometimes, let's just let's look at a, a few biblical pictures of this. Sometimes it's called a new creation. Ephesians 2, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. You're a Christian. God created you a Christian. You didn't do that. God did that. He created you. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Or sometimes it's called new birth. John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Sometimes it's called calling. We preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. We'll say now, the preaching is happening, right? That's happened a lot of times in this conference. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ. <laughs> this message of Christ crucified is now Christ power of God, wisdom of God. Now, 
got to get this. You have H.B. preaching Christ, saying, come, believe, gladly submit to this preached, crucified Christ. And some, when they hear that call, say, foolishness. Others, when they hear that call, say, stumbling block. And some say, that's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. Who are they? They're the called. Well, they're all called. That's why we do theology. And that's, what, that's, how, you, that's how you become a theologian. Is just think, okay, they're all called. He just, they were all just called. You're all, you were all called to the crucified Christ. Oh, that you might be called to the crucified Christ. Because if you're called by God to the crucified Christ, you say, because a miracle happens, like Lazarus, come forth, my Lord and my God. The crucified Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So sometimes it's called a new creation, sometimes it's called new birth, sometimes it's called being called, and sometimes it's called being chosen out of the world. Different than election, but John 15, 19. You are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Sometimes it's called death to the old nature and new life in holiness. Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him. You didn't do that. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you die and you rise. That's a work of God. So there's, what, five pictures of what I mean by the miracle that happens that makes you a believer, makes you a Christian, makes you heaven-bound. So whatever you call this moment of conversion, it is decisively, decisively, the work of God, new creation of God, new birth by the wind of God's Spirit, mighty call of God out of the tomb of spiritual death, divine choice of God out of the darkness of the world, divine union between us and the dying and rising Christ so that we have newness of life. Whatever it's called, it is the gift of a new nature with a new gladness in a new God through a new gospel. If God waited for us to bring this about by our so-called free will, it would never happen. Sinners do not create new life. Sinners, which is what we were before conversion, right? Sinners do not bring themselves to birth. Sinners do not call themselves out of the tomb. Sinners do not choose themselves out of the world. Sinners do not forge a union with Christ so that his death and his life become ours. This is the work of God. 
bringing into being a new person. And my point is that the most basic, most essential distinction between this new person and the world, this new nature and the world, the non-Christian, is not new decisions, not new deeds, not new doctrines, most basic decision, most basic difference. These are all necessary traits of the new nature, necessary traits of the new nature. They are not most basic and most essential. Most basic and most essential is a new gladness in a new God through a new gospel. Now, with that introduction, <laughs> would you open your Bibles to Psalm 4? <laughs> Book of Psalms, the fourth Psalm, I'm going to be focusing on verses 6 and 7, because my subtitle is, How is Christian Joy Distinct? Start at verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You got issues of where the quote marks should be there, by the way? And just imagine that there are no quote marks in your Bible and see what happens. There are many who say, who will show us some good? I'm closing the quote there. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, this is a Psalm of David, according to verse 1. And then there are these others in verse uh, seven, these others. You have put more joy in my heart than they, they, they have when their grain and wine abound. Who's they? Who are they? Let's go back up to verses two and three and get a little glimpse of them. Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call. So there's David on the one side, and there, there are these lovers of vain words who seek after lies and turn David's honor into shame. Those are not godly people. They are not covenant-keeping lovers of God. They are the world. Care whether they're Jewish or not. They are the world. Because the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, verse 3. There's the godly, and then there are these, these scoffers. Those who love vain words, seek after lies, they're not included 
in the godly that verse 7 is going to be talking about. Nevertheless, they prosper often, right? And they're prospering here in verse 7. Their grain and their wine are abounding. Now, wine is made from grapes, not grain. So, when you put wine, uh, grain and wine together, you're talking about uh, harvest of food, and you're talking about vintage of, of refreshing drink. So basic sustenance is, there's plenty of it, and we can have a good time with this wine. So that's, those are the two things that are abundant. Let me read you from uh, Genesis 27, 28, just so you hear how grain and wine, how good that is. This is Jacob's, uh, no, Isaac's blessing over Jacob. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. So these are good gifts, really good gifts from God. They are meant in the godly to awaken thankfulness and joy in the bounty and the refreshing sweetness of God himself, right? You, you enjoy through the gifts to the giver and taste something of God in every good thing that he gives you. But as David looks at this unbelieving world enjoying, they're enjoying the bounty of its grain and wine, he says in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than that. You have put more joy in my heart. More joy than that. More joy than bountiful food can give. More joy than uh, bountiful wine can give. So more joy than when your basic needs are being met and more joy when there's super added pleasures of taste and gladness. Going pretty well for the godless. Lots of grain, lots of wine, lots of happiness, joy. I don't chop those words up because the Bible doesn't. Happiness, joy, pleasure, delight, satisfaction, abounding in the world. And David says, I, I have more. But let's be careful here. And I'm going I'm to do some Hebrew with you. But the reason I feel legitimate in doing some Hebrew work with you is number one, because there's some folks here who can hold me accountable. And number two, because in the end, and I want you to feel the happiness of this for all of you non-Hebrew readers, the context is going to decide what the Hebrew means. And you can see that context without Hebrew. So let's, here's what I mean. The way that Hebrew describes a distinction from something is with the preposition from or min. For example, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Like, I have more joy than they have when they're grain and wine about. So the, the serpent was more crafty 
Now, literally, and nobody should ever translate it this way, so when I say literally, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good way to translate it. It's just I want you to hear the Hebrew behind it. The, the serpent was crafty from any other beast of the field. Here's the reason that matters. The Hebrew reader is left to decide what the distinction is. See, the word, the word more in English, more joy, you automatically think quantitatively. Like they've got 60 and I got 70. It, it doesn't work that way in Hebrew. That's why I'm working on this for a minute. Um, it, when, it, when it says the serpent was crafty from any other beasts of the field, the question then becomes uh, distinct from other beasts in quantity of craftiness, frequency of craftiness, subtlety of craftiness, wickedness of craftiness. Doesn't say. You got to figure that out from the context. So here we are in, in verse 7 of chapter 4, and you've got something like a, a, an awkward literal rendering. You have put more joy in my heart from the time or the season of their abounding grain and wine. And you're left to decide what quantity of joy or source of joy that's different or kind of joy that's different. And we're thrown back on the context and whoopee, every English reader can see it. This is really important homiletically for, for probably 90% of you in here. I would guess those of you who studied Hebrew didn't keep it, and lots of you didn't study it, and you're feeling like, oh, there it goes again, you know, quoting original languages, no hope for us. Baloney, there are 10,000 glories in the English Bible you have not yet seen and that Hebrew readers haven't seen. Give yourself to long staring at the English Bible, carefully putting the pieces together, and you will see more than many PhDs in our universities. Okay, that's not in the text of the sermon. Just close that up, and let me see if I can find my place. I love preachers and preaching and don't want to discourage you. So, oh yeah. So the context here, we're thrown back on the context as to, okay, if more may not be exactly right, what, what is it? What? And here's, my, here's what I'm pointing you to as a contextual clue to how his joy is superior in some way to all that grain and wine-based joy. And I'm going to get it from verse 6 by noting that on the front end, and you, of course, get rid of verse divisions and get rid of chapter divisions and all that stuff. On the front end of you have put superior joy in my heart, you have lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And on the other side, you've got joy in grain and wine abounding. And I asked myself, why would David put it together 
in this way if he didn't want us to contrast the joy that comes from grain and wine and the joy that comes from the shining of the face of God. Now, I don't think, you don't, know, you don't have to know Hebrew to see that. You just have to look and think. You cry out, make your face shine on us, O oh God, and then say, you have put more joy in my heart than all that grain and wine-based happiness. Yes, you have. So I think David is uh, claiming that there is another joy that is not necessarily attached to food and drink. It's not like their joy is in grain and wine, so is mine, but more. I don't think it's like that at all, given the context of verse 6. Verse 3 says, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And what do the godly call to him for? They call, verse 6, second half of the verse, lift up your light, the light of your face upon us, O Lord, because this gives me a different joy, a greater joy, a better joy. And we'll, we'll get to more specifics in just a minute about how's it better. Now, to do this, here's the way I, here's the way I, I stopped at that point. I said, okay, I think David wants me to see that the lifting up of the light of the countenance of God upon him brought him a, a, a kind, a, a quantity, a superiority of joy better than wine and food-based joy. And I said, how so? How so? What? Can, do I make this up? Do I just guess? How does, faces, how does the face of God do that? What does the face of God mean? Now, what would you do at that point in your sermon preparation? Well, you open your concordance or your logos or your whatever. You open it up and you, you look, in the Psalms especially, for the face of God showing up and see what it tastes like, see what it looks like. So let's, let me just give you about four or five of these. Psalm 80, verse 3. Cause us to return, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalm 119, 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. It saves me. It, when it shows up, it saves me. When it shows up, it illumines me so that your word is beautiful and understandable to me. Psalm 44, verse 3, not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So the light of God's face is the free gift of his delight that brings our victories. Psalm 31, verse 16. Make your face shine on your servant Save me in your steadfast love. So the shining of God's face is the brightness of his steadfast love bringing salvation. One more. Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. So the shining of God's face 
is the shining of his grace upon us with a view to blessing all the peoples of the world. So this, that's some of what it means when David cries out for the face of God to shine upon him. And though, I chose those in specific because they were all objective outside of David blessings coming to him, not what's going on in here yet. Re rehearsal. Saving work, overcoming our blindness, subduing our rebellion causes us to return to God. That is work from outside of us doing stuff on us. Or, that was Psalm 80 verse 3. Or, the opening of our eyes to the wonders of the Word, Psalm 19, 119, 135. The expression of God's delight in us and victory over our foes, Psalm 44, 3. Shining of His steadfast love that makes us a blessing to the nations, Psalm 67. Now, those are all objective, coming at us from outside, blessings from the face, from being in the light of the face of God. Now, in his mind, this is a joy issue. This is not just like, oh, good, good things are happening to me, but something is going to happen in here. What, what are the subjective effects in David's mind? I mean, I'm a Christian hedonist man. I'm ready to fill up these things right away without looking at the Bible. I can, I can think of a lot of ways that those five external works are going to affect me, but I really want to constantly test my paradigm, and it's a massively controlling paradigm. I see it everywhere in the Bible. I can't preach a sermon without thinking about it. So I want to test it all the time. And here are some examples of what I see. Job 33:26. Man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. So Subjectively, I see the face of God. Yes, you are awesome. That's a shout of joy. Not like, whoa, boredom. Give me a TV, quick. <laughs> I think Matt should have said, I'm telling you to give away your TV. But he didn't because he's, he's more gracious than I am. <laughs> or Psalm 1611 in your presence, now that's the same word for face, right? In your, before your face, there is fullness of joy. So as, as the face shines and these objective blessings are pouring on us, in us, he's saying fullness of joy is happening in the light of God's countenance. One more, Psalm 17, 15. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So now we got three of my favorite words, right? Shout of joy, fullness of joy, satisfied with the likeness of God, and all of it is a God-inspired biblical description of what happens in here when God answers the prayer of Psalm 4, 6b. 
Make your face shine on me. I need this more than I need grain, more than I need wine. I need the face of God. I need the light of his countenance because streams of objective blessings start pouring to me in that light and rising up inside are these subjective satisfactions of soul that are evidently very different than what you feel like when you've had enough to eat and you're drinking yourself. Silly. <laughs> this is the new gladness of the psalmist. And given this context here, I conclude it is better than the gladness of the world in every way. For example, the source is infinite and supremely beautiful. Contrast God with what? Contrast God with a loaf of bread. The source is infinite and supremely beautiful. Second, the duration is eternal. Fullness of joy at your right hand forevermore. Third, the quality of it is unique because no mere man can see and enjoy the holy, light, bright beauty of God. No mere man can do it. You're blind. If it's going to happen in you, it will be a creation of God. That puts it in a class unique from all the pleasures of the world. We must experience a miracle. Now, isn't it wonderful when you're, when you're meditating on the Old Testament, Lig Duncan is the, is the master here, so I want to go to school on, on Lig. Isn't it wonderful to be doing this and just kind of step back and, and, and ask yourself this question, okay, I live, on, I live on this side of the cross. Are there... Are there clues? Are there links? Are there ways that all that that I just saw there about the joy of the godly being better in every way from the joy of the world? Any any links? Any verbal links like taste and see or, you know, something like that? So let me read to you 2 Corinthians 4. Four and six, and you listen, you listen, see what you, see what you hear. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Okay, I'm on to this now. Make the light of your face shine upon us. It's Old Testament language, and, and here I'm, I'm hearing Paul say that the devil uh, makes a special designed effort to blind me to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He gets even more close as you go to verse 6. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown, that's what David is crying for, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Make your face shine upon us. You've seen his face. You read the gospels, you see his face. His, his face here in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 surely is what people who've never seen the body of the incarnate Christ can see by all the ways his embodied self acted and spoke in this world, which is what their gospels are for. So, what was the psalmist crying out for in Psalm 4, 6? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That prayer is answered supremely when God causes the eyes of our hearts on this side of the cross to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel. So we were blind. We were blind and saw in the gospel nothing compelling. So all of you started in this world. Nothing. You saw nothing compelling at all about God or Christ. We thought we had a better God than God. We thought we had a better gospel. We thought we had a better gladness. All our food and wine, good night. American food and wine is endless. Then God shone in our hearts and the light of God was lifted up in the face of of Jesus and we awoke, we awoke. Just like the psalmist said, would happen if the light shone on us. And when we awoke, we didn't only see spiritual beauty with the eyes of the heart, which we did, we also smelled sweet spiritual aroma of Christ with the noses of our heart, 2 Corinthians 2.15. We tasted the satisfying goodness of God with the tongues of our heart, 1 Peter 2, 2. We touched the healing fringe of the garment of God with the finger, with the finger of our heart, uh, Matthew 9, 20. We heard the song of God rejoicing over us with gladness in Zephaniah three seventeen. Now I ask, what, what's the point? What's the point of a new fragrance of Christ, a new taste of divine kindness, a new touch of wholeness, a new sound of God's song, a new sight of God's bright smiling face. What's the point of all that sensuous language? The point is that the most basic, most essential distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian is not new decisions. You don't decide to taste. Not new decisions of the will, not new deeds of the hands, not new doctrines of the mind, but a new delight in the heart. A new delight in spiritual beauty, spiritual taste, spiritual touch, spiritual fragrance, spiritual sound. And from that new gladness, surpassing all the joys of the world, flow the springs of life. This is why I said my message should have come first. I'm giving you what I think is the deepest root of everything that's been said in this conference. I'm going to close by trying to make that clear in the the last three or four minutes. From this new gladness, 
in a new God, through a new gospel, made possible through a new gospel, all the springs of life flow, Proverbs 4.23. Out of the abundance of the heart of new gladness, the mind thinks new thoughts and the will resolves new decisions and the hands do new deeds, Matthew 12.34. From this new gladness in our new treasure, we joyfully sell all that we have and buy that field at any cost. Cost us our lives. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I sell everything to have that field? And it says in Matthew 13, 44, with joy, he sold everything he had and bought that field. He didn't say, oh, I guess I have to sell everything I have. That's unbelief. That's unbelief. Guess I got to go to church. Guess I got to stop sleeping around. That's unbelief. You joyfully sell all that you have. From this new gladness, new treasure, joyfully sell all that we have. From this new gladness in our great reward, we are happy and willing to rejoice in persecution, for great is our reward in heaven. The abundance of this new gladness, over into 2 Corinthians 8, overflows through affliction and poverty in a wealth of generosity. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is the picture of love in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, where those amazing Macedonians are in the midst of poverty and affliction and their joy overflows in an abundance of generosity. So, from this most basic, most essential distinction from the world flow all the other distinctions you have heard in nine other messages. From this new gladness comes new godliness. From new prizing comes new praising. From new delights come new duties. From new desires come new disciplines. From new happiness come new habits. From new preferences come new purchases. From new contentment comes new kindness. From new, new cherishing comes new charity or chastity. From new pleasure comes new patience. From new satisfaction comes new sexual purity. From new cheerfulness comes new faithfulness. From new treasuring comes new tenderness. From new joy comes new justice. From new rejoicing comes new risks for what is right. From new savoring in the soul comes new sweetness on the tongue with our spouses. And from new life in the heart comes new love through the hand. So, may God make the truth clear and compelling that the most basic, the most essential thing that distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian is not new decisions of the will, not new deeds of the hands, not new doctrines of the mind, but a new gladness in a new God through a new gospel.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that none would be able to take whatever is true here and turn it into something peripheral. When in fact, out of the heart flow the springs of everything. And there are no Christians that haven't been given a new taste of your all-satisfying goodness. There aren't any. And so I pray that pastors would feel desperate to be used in supernatural ministry to awaken people from the dead, which only you can do. I ask this in Jesus' name.